Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Man, it really was, uh, it really was an awesome week. Um, you'll be able to tell that I screamed the whole week because I'm like starting to lose my voice. So um, I'm sorry about that. I'll, you, I'll have to whisper it to you guys. Um, hey, if you don't know me, my name is Jeff. Um, I have the honor of working with our middle and high school students here at Port City and uh, just got to do two back-to-back weeks of camp. It was insane. It was so much fun. Um, and we really got to see God move in the lives of our students. And uh, I just want to share with you guys this week a little bit about what we um, talked about. If you've ever been to camp before uh, with middle school and high school students, it's arguably the messiest place on earth, um, and that's not an exaggeration. I don't know if you could tell from the mud whenever it rained, but uh, things were really, really dirty. And I remember as a kid, uh, every now and again, we would have these days where my mom would wake us up and make us clean the entire house, right? Like she would get us up and it would, like we would know, like, oh, it's one of those days, right? Uh, where we got to clean the whole house, where we got to pick up our crazy mess. And as a middle school boy, like I, I knew what to do, right? Whenever it came to cleaning the house, what I would do is I would take all the, uh, all the stuff, all the items and dirty clothes strewn around my room and I would pick it all up and I'd shove it in the closet and close the door, right? Because that's what you do. And I gave the appearance of cleanliness, which is really all that mattered most of the time because normally these days uh, where we would clean, it would be because there were like guests coming over, right? And middle school, high school student in the room, like just so you know, the parents, this is for you. Uh, it is totally reasonable for your parents wanting you to clean your room whenever your guests come over, all right? Like that is totally reasonable. I promise it's gonna be okay. Um, but I did not think it was reasonable back then. And not only did I not think it was reasonable back then, but uh, something would happen every now and again that was not reasonable at all. And I stand by this today. And that is this. We would spend the whole day cleaning the house, getting everything put together, make the house really look really nice. And instead of a guest showing up for dinner, the the person which, that, that would show up would be the cleaning company that my mom hired to clean the house. And it would crush my spirit because I'm like, I just spent the whole day cleaning the house and these people are here to do what? Clean the house, right? It did not make any sense to me. And I recognize that having your house cleaned by someone else is a privilege that not everyone has experienced. But uh, every couple of months, my mom uh, would do that and I would be insanely frustrated. I'd be infuriated, right, at the injustice. Um, And I've heard two reasons for why you would do this, two reasons. Uh, the first reason is this, and my mom's probably watching online right now screaming at the TV screen because I'm making her look bad, but uh, the, the first reason that my mom would always give is this, that if you clean the house before the cleaning company shows up, they clean your house better, right? They clean your house better than they would have before because they don't have to pick up all your clutter, right? Like they, they clean your house better as long as you pick everything up first. But the second reason, the more realistic reason, and if you're one of these people in the room, I'm sorry, I'm about, to, I'm about to expose you. But the more realistic reason is that you don't want the people who work for the cleaning company to think that you're dirty, right? Like, that's the truth. That's the truth. You don't want the cleaning company to think that you're dirty, which we won't talk about the irony of trying to hide your dirtiness from the cleaning company, but that's a different, that's a different message for a different time. Um, but that used to infuriate me as a kid. And while we're not here to air out all of my childhood's dirty laundry, much to my dismay, as much as I enjoy doing that every time I come up here, it's a therapy session. Uh, what I want to suggest to you guys today, what I want to suggest to our church today is that in many ways... You and I treat our souls, our spirits, our lives, and our minds the same way that we treat the house before the cleaning company shows up. 
Meaning that you and I play the same act that I used to as a kid. That before we show up to church, before we go to small group, before we meet with that friend to grab coffee, before we answer the question, how are you doing? We like to take all the mess of our lives and cram it in the closet and shut the door and not let anyone see it. We like to take all the mess of our lives and cram it in the closet to make sure no one sees it. All the problems of life, whether it's marital struggles, maybe it's mental health, anxiety, depression, maybe it's financial struggles, maybe it's spiritual struggles, maybe it's uh, relationship struggles, but we like to take all of that stuff, shove it in the closet and act like it isn't there. And we give the appearance of cleanliness, right? The appearance of having it all together, but we know there's a bunch of stuff in the closet. And the problem is my tricks as a, as a middle school boy would never work on the cleaning company, right? They would eventually open up the closet door and see the mess. And the problem for you and I today is that the people that we do a relationship with in the church are supposed to be a lot less like a surface level friendship and a lot more like the cleaning company, right? A lot more like the people who get into the mess with us and see it. If we're really in Christ-centered community, if we're really bearing our souls to one another, if we're really being honest, eventually the closet is gonna get open and the mess is gonna fall out. And I don't know about you guys, but I think that's terrifying, right? Like that is scary. And as you guys know, we've been in this series called Summer Sabbath and we've been talking about what it would, uh, what it would look like um, to cease striving and to treat the summer as a Sabbath or a time set apart to experience rest as we stop working in order to trust in God's provision. If you're like most people, whenever you think of this idea, when you think of a Sabbath, when you think of rest, you think of something that you do by yourself, right? Something you do whenever you're alone, something you do uh, pulled out from the rest of the world. Um, and we've even talked about this idea of silence and solitude, right? And while that part of rest is important, finding rest alone is important, it matters, and we should do it. There's also another side of Sabbath. Maybe that, that, that picture of Sabbath by yourself is a little incomplete if you leave the rest out, that there should be a Sabbath rest that you and I can find in community, a Sabbath rest that you, can, you and I can find in relationship with one another. And I recognize if you're like an introvert, my, like my wife, right? You're like, that's impossible. If I'm around people, I definitely can't experience rest, right? Meanwhile, I'm like, that's the best thing ever. That's exactly how I rest. Um, but, uh, but even for example, what's happening in this room right now, right? Like church on Sunday is probably not something that you think of as restful, Right, Go, having people over to your house probably not something that you think of as restful. Uh, standing around saying hi, answering the question how you're doing, meeting new people, like none of that stuff feels restful, especially if you're standing in front of the closet door of your life all morning hoping that the mess doesn't fall out or that no one looks in. And for me, I could think of how I used to do this and I still do it sometimes, but a particular example came to mind. About 11 years ago, um, I was in rehab for opiate addiction and uh, whenever I got to rehab, I was totally alone, didn't know anyone there, and I made this really, really close friend. His name was Connor, uh, and me and Connor were tight. Uh, we hung out all the time. We had similar life experiences. We had been through a lot of the same stuff, and we were really, really close uh, friends, and as we kind of went through life and uh, progressed beyond rehab and we entered back into the world, we would keep in touch every now and again, but we wouldn't talk all the time, and, um, and he was just one of those people that like, I just loved to be around. And I remember my family met him. My family loved to be around. Connor and every, you know, every couple weeks or so, maybe every couple months, we'd call each other and check in. And I remember after getting out of rehab, a few months later, I gave Connor a call just to say, what's up, see how he's doing. And he answered the phone. I was like, hey man, how are you doing? 
He's like, oh, I'm good. Everything's good. I'm doing great. How are you? And I kind of said the same thing. Oh, I'm good. Everything's good. I'm doing great. And the truth was is that I wasn't doing great, right? Like I had, I had relapsed. I was kind of spiraling back out of control. But after he told me he was doing good, I really didn't know how to tell him that, right? And maybe it was out of my own pride. Maybe it was out of wanting to, to preserve uh, his happiness or his life. But I didn't feel like I could tell him the truth of where I was actually at. I didn't feel like I could tell him I was spiraling out of control. So after a little bit, uh, things got too unmanageable. I ended up back in the same rehab that I met Connor at. And upon arriving at that rehab, I found out that Connor, who had been at that same rehab with me months before, had overdosed and passed away shortly after we talked. Right, shortly after we had a conversation, shortly after we said, yeah, I'm good, everything's good, we're doing great, he had overdosed and passed away. And the truth was is that none, none, neither of us felt like we could be real, right? Neither of us felt like, ah, actually I should tell this dude that things aren't doing too good, right? Neither of us felt like we could do that. We both had stuff shoved in the closet door and we didn't want to talk about it. And again, maybe that was because of pride. Maybe we were trying to help the other person out, but I can't help but think sometimes, if I'm being real with you guys, I can't help but think sometimes, would things have been different if we would have talked about it? Would things have been different if we would have been real with each other that day about what was going on? And while I don't like playing the what if game, I think for many of us in the room today, while your story isn't the same, you do the same thing that me and Connor like to do, right? You do the same thing that we like to do. We have a tendency to hide the mess. We have a tendency to stand in front of the closet door, even if the very thing that will help you, the very thing that will help you move beyond the mess is opening up and letting someone else see it right? And we have a tendency to not let anyone in. And I'm not saying that like, and, and the truth, that, that is true for everyone in this room, right? And I'm not saying that your life is in shambles and everything's falling apart. Hopefully it's not. I, I know for me, I don't feel like that right now. And, and maybe many of you don't either. Maybe some of you do, but I would be willing to bet that every person in this room has some sort of hardship, some sort of situation that they are navigating, that it would be easier to navigate if you weren't navigating it alone, and this year as we were preparing for Fuse Camp, as we were talking about what are we going to talk about with our middle school and high school students, uh, we were discussing what to focus on and we sent out a survey. We sent it out to our leaders, our parents, and our students uh, in our student ministry. And we asked them questions like, hey, what are your biggest struggles that you're facing right now? And what sin patterns do you notice in your life? We asked them a lot of different questions. And while it was anonymous, I wanna share with you guys some of the answers uh, that we received today. And uh, whenever we asked them, what are the biggest struggles that you're facing today? Um, I'm about to show you some responses, just so you know, these are copy and pasted from the, from the survey. So these are how they wrote them. Some of them are not grammatically correct. So if you're an English major, I'm sorry for what you're about to see, um, but you'll be fine, I promise. Um, whenever we asked what kind of, what things are you struggling with? They responded, they said things like, the struggle of not letting other people's opinions affect me. The struggle of worrying about what others think. I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with pressure of what peers think. I struggle with social media and mental health. I struggle with healthy relationships. I'm just not very good at them. I struggle with confidence. I struggle with acceptance. I struggle with closed-minded people and I struggle with feeling alone. And then whenever we ask these middle school and high school students what sin patterns they notice themselves struggling with, they said things like, 
not always loving neighbors. I sin with jealousy and talking about other people by lying and being a hypocrite. I, I struggle about, with gossiping, uh, with not paying attention to what I'm saying and who it affects. I struggle with people pleasing and gossiping. And it gets a little repetitive here. I struggle with habitual lying, with purposefully thinking less of others, with gossiping and keeping secrets, with not showing love to people, with gossiping and lying, loving difficult people, lying and gossip. These are our middle school and high school students, very likely whom are sitting in the room right now. But adults, can we be real for a second? How many of you, by show of hands, how many of you would say that you struggle with some of, that things on, some of the things on that list, right? All of us, all of us struggle with things on that list. And if you didn't raise your hand, then you're lying and we caught you, huh? Everybody, <laughs> everybody struggles with something on that list, right? Whether it's gossiping, whether it's lying, whether it's struggling to love difficult people, right? We all struggle with things on that list. It's not just our students, it's us too. Our students, the ones, again, probably sitting in the room right now, they know uh, that they have failed to connect in a way that is meaningful, they know that they, they have struggled to find real, honest relationships. And again, adults, the truth is that you and I do too. And in a lot of ways, I think adults are worse off because the older we get, the more we go on in life, the better we get at hiding stuff, right? The better we get at hiding stuff and the more stuff that's in the closet and the more pressure we feel to keep the closet door shut and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The pressure builds and builds and builds and we just get fearful of what will happen if we let it out. So what do we do with this? If everyone in the room from middle school students to adults struggle to find meaningful relationships, struggle to be honest with each other, struggle to, to keep each other's struggles in confidence and not talk, each other, talk about each other behind each other's backs, like if we all struggle with that, we struggle to let the people into the mess of our lives, how do we learn to live differently? And I wanna take a step back, I wanna look had some people who definitely did live differently, right? And it wasn't that they didn't have struggles. It wasn't that they were perfect. They certainly had all of those things, but they still found beautiful, meaningful, transformative relationships with each other. And I think Jesus really laid the groundwork for this uh, in Matthew 12. And we're gonna be there today if you have your Bibles with you. Um, you can turn to Matthew 12. We'll be towards the end of the chapter. And in Matthew 12... Jesus is in a house and he's, uh, he's teaching uh, a large group of people. It says there's a large crowd there um, and, uh, and they're kind of there to learn from him. They probably heard about him. This was whenever Jesus's fame was kind of growing and growing and growing. And it was honestly kind of like church, right? Like Jesus is standing up there teaching and there's a large group of people uh, listening to them. And uh, it never tells us why. But while Jesus is up there, uh, his family shows up. And while this gospel doesn't tell us why his family shows up, there are other gospels that do, and it's usually because they think that Jesus is crazy, right? They, Jesus is running around teaching all of these things that would have been antithetical to what they had heard before. He's running around saying that he's the Messiah and his family is worried. That's what we see happen in all the other gospels. They're like, dude, you can't be saying stuff like this. Like, have you lost your mind? And they come and there's this big crowd and they wanna get inside to speak with Jesus, but they can't get past the crowd. So they start to tell people who are in the crowd, hey, Jesus is our, is our son. Jesus is our brother. Can you uh, go get him? We want to speak with him. And they still can't get to them and, and their words kind of ripple through the crowd and eventually it reaches the front and uh, we'll look at what happens in verse 46. It says, while Jesus was still speaking with the crowds, his mothers and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him and someone told him, look, 
your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. And there's this contrast between those who are in the room, those who are listening, those who are learning from Jesus, and his family who is outside who probably thinks that he's crazy. Right? There's this difference between these two people, those who are there listening and those who are on the outside. And then it continues. The differences only continue in verse 48. It says, Jesus replies to the one who is speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and mother. And I don't know about you, but in some ways, this passage makes me a little uncomfortable, right? Like you read that and you're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, isn't that a little extreme? I mean, that's your blood family outside, right? These are the people who have known you since you were a baby. These are the people who have been there for everything. This is your actual family. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. My actual family is those who do the will of God, those who follow me, those who are my disciples. Jesus isn't saying that his earthly family doesn't matter, right? If we look at the rest of the gospels, that's obvious. Now, he's not saying that his earthly family doesn't matter. In fact, the same family that's outside, the same family that thinks he's crazy ends up becoming believers after the resurrection. If you look at the story of Jesus's brother, James, it's beautiful. Right? He went from thinking that Jesus was this crazy dude to writing our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in, in, in the book that's in the Bible later. Right, James uh, is a beautiful record of, of what happened uh, with his family. But what I think Jesus is trying to clue us in here, into here, while he's not trying to say, oh, your family doesn't matter, don't worry about them. What Jesus is trying to clue us into here is that an invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to a family. The invitation to follow Jesus, the invitation that Jesus extends to all of us to follow him is an invitation to a family. And I think we struggle with this today. I think we fail to grasp this today. For a lot of us in the room today, like it or not, if there's anyone who who knows the dirt on us, if there's anyone who knows what's in the closet, who knows where we've been, who knows what, what we've had to navigate in our life, for most of us, it's our family, right? And maybe this is your blood family. Maybe these are the people that you've chosen to do life with, but it's the people that you do life with every single day. They oftentimes, they are the ones that know the mess. Right, they're the ones who see what's going on. They see the struggles. They see us fail to connect in meaningful ways. And what Jesus is saying here is that maybe you and I should have the same level of intimacy, the same level of relationship, the same level of lowered guards with the family of God as we do with our own family. Or maybe if you don't have your own family that you're super tight with, maybe the family of God is the first time that you're going to experience that, right? We need to learn to open up the closet and let the mess out with the family of God in the same way that we do with our own family. See, whenever you and I decide to follow Jesus, when we decide to become a part of a church, we're not joining a, a, a social club, right? Like we're not joining a networking party where the invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation to attend an event at 9, 11, and 5 on Sundays, right? That is not at all what Jesus invites us to. Rather, Jesus makes it clear that for those who choose to follow him, they're entering into the family of God. And in the same way that your earthly family knows the mess behind the door, or the people that you do life with every single day, they know the mess behind the door. Can we learn to invite the family of God into that same space? 
And whenever we talk about Sabbath rest, when we talk about this idea, could it, could it be that the only reason why you and I can find rest, uh, the only reason that we can't imagine find, finding rest whenever we're around other people is because we have no idea how to stop striving when we are. We have no idea how to stop striving around the family of God. We have no idea how to not stand in front of the closet door and finally let the mess spill out. And for the disciples that we read about here, they really had no other choice. Whenever we look at the disciples throughout the gospels, I mean, they were a mess. Like they were a mess, no questions asked. They did life with each other every single day. They were not people of faith. They were constantly asking questions, constantly misunderstanding things, constantly getting things wrong. They saw each other's flaws. They saw each other's struggles. They saw each other's shortcomings. They knew the mess in the closet. In fact, for a lot of the disciples, whenever Jesus called them, they were in the middle of a mess. I think about Matthew, the tax collector, right? He was in the middle of a mess whenever Jesus called him. And these same disciples, they followed Jesus to the end, right? They saw him crucified. They saw him uh, dead and buried. They saw him uh, raised again, resurrected, and then they watched him ascend to heaven. And after these disciples see this, after they watch Jesus ascend into heaven and he says, hey, I'm gonna send you a helper, all of a sudden they're there alone. Right, it's just them. It's just them, uh, the disciples together, and they have to figure out what to do next as they wait for this helper, as they wait for the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to send. If we continue to kind of follow the thread, to follow the story, it takes us to Acts. And if you have your Bibles with you, we're gonna be in uh, Acts 2 next. And uh, this community that the disciples had, this community that they had started, that they had created, they didn't keep it to themselves. They didn't only do it with one another, right? They flung open the doors. The community that they started, I would say, is the same community that you and I are a part of today, right? This movement that the disciples started, this community that the disciples started is why you and I are sitting in the room today. This is what we are a part of now. We call it the church, and the beginning of this movement, the beginning of this community that we are now a part of is recorded beautifully in the book of Acts. And if you've ever read Acts, it kind of records what happens immediately after Jesus left, how the church got started. It's kind of a sequel to the gospel um, of Luke. And again, we're going to be in chapter two if you have your Bibles there. And if you know chapter two, uh, this is where we get the story of Pentecost, right? And if you grew up in the church, you may have a weird relationship with Pentecost. The church feels weird about this. If you grew up charismatic, you love Pentecost, you're all about Pentecost, it was your jam. If you grew up Presbyterian like me, it makes you super uncomfortable, right? You're like, you're like this is weird, I don't know about all this. Um, but in, in, in this story, the disciples are in Jerusalem. There's tons of people from all over the place, all different languages, all different cultures, and they're there to celebrate this holiday, uh, Pentecost. And it says there's mobs of people gathered together. And uh, when all these people are together, the Holy Spirit shows up for the first time. And it says it's like a rushing wind from heaven. And we're gonna start reading what happens in verse five. It says, now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, this rushing wind from heaven, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard each other speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? And this is crazy, right? This is confusing. We have all these people from all over the place, and all of a sudden they can understand each other. All these people who speak different languages, all of a sudden they can understand each other. And it's, it's crazy. Um, and it, it's this cool, beautiful story about the beginning of the church. But I think sometimes we get so caught up debating the theology of this passage that we miss the beauty of it. 
We miss the beauty of what happened at Pentecost. We miss the fact that this is people from all over the place, all different cultures, all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different races, all different languages, and they're brought together as one under the banner of Jesus. Regardless of what you think about the theology of this passage, can we agree that that is beautiful? It didn't matter their differences. Didn't matter what they disagreed on. Didn't matter what mess was stuffed in the closet. What mattered was the Holy Spirit uniting them as one church. And as we know, that movement, that church continued until today, it's still going strong in this room right now. And the church, the family of God, is not predicated on being all the same. It doesn't count on everybody agreeing on everyone, every little thing. It doesn't count on everyone thinking the same about politics or dressing the same or, or having everything all together. It doesn't count on that at all. In fact, the early church was known for its diversity. It was known for being one of the few groups that had people from all over the place, all different cultures, all different languages in one family. There was nothing else like it. And the other thing that they were known for in the midst of that diversity was the way that they loved each other and the way that they loved the people around them. And once this happens, once they, uh, the, these people start speaking in tongues and hearing these languages that they know, uh, Peter stands up next and he preaches this sermon to this new, what is essentially the beginning of the church. And we're not going to read through the sermon. If you want to read through it later, it's in between uh, Acts, the beginning of Acts 2 and what we're about to read. And uh, Peter gives a banger of a sermon in like two paragraphs for us. It takes like 45 minutes, but Peter's out here crushing it. Uh, and uh, I would encourage you to go read it. But after he preaches the sermon, uh, I love what the people do. The people who are listening, they stand up in verse 37. It says, whenever they heard this, this sermon, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? What should we do? If everything you just preached to us is true, Peter, what should we do? And that word, brothers, there, Adelphoi, it's, it, it, the Greek there, it means sibling, family, one from the same womb, which means even at the beginning of the church, even for these people, right, who, who are just picking up on all this, even they recognize each other as family. And at the end of the day, Peter tells them to repent, get baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. And in verse 41, it says that 3,000 people joined the church that day. 3,000 people joined the church that day. It's the first mega church right here. Uh, <laughs> how beautiful is that? 3,000 people that day chose to repent together. They chose to open up the closet. They chose to let the mess spill out. They chose to help each other clean it up with the aid of the Holy Spirit. They didn't say, Peter, what do you mean repent? I have nothing to repent from. My life is good. Everything's perfect. I don't struggle with anything. That's not what they did at all, right? Instead, they repented together. And because they repented together, they grew together. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on to tell us how these 3,000 people do life together afterwards. Picking up in verse 42, it says this. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being, formed through the, were being performed through the apostles. And now all the believers were together. They held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the picture of the church. 
If it's true that the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to a family, then this is how the family lives. This is what it's supposed to look like. It's not an hour on Sunday morning. It's not an event. It's certainly not a building. It's a family that does life together through the good and the bad. And if you take the time to read the rest of Acts, you can see what happens next. It's persecutions, it's hardships, it's people being, disciples being put to the death for what they did, right? It's not pretty. They had disagreements. They thought differently about all sorts of different things, but they were united as one church under the Holy Spirit. And as we looked at Fuse this year, as we prepared for it, uh, we knew that this was kind of the vision that we had to give students. This is the vision that we had to give students. This is what they're longing for and looking for. And like I said, I don't think that's just true for students. I think it's true for us in the room as well, right? You and I are longing for this kind of relationship, this kind of community, this kind of life as well, a real community. Not just making friends, not just networking or meeting people, but real community. Not a self-centered community, but a Jesus-centered community. Not just friendships, but rather a family. Not just a community that accepts us where we are, but a community that ultimately transforms us. Not a community that's faced inward, thinking of ourselves, but a community that's faced outward, changing the world. You and I have to learn to have vision for the family of God. We have to learn to have vision for the family of God in the same way that Jesus did. When he sat in that room and he said, who are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters, those who do the will of God. We have to learn to have that same vision for the people on our left and on our right this morning, that they are our brothers and our sisters and our mothers. And not only that, that if that's true, if we're a part of this family of God, then we have a responsibility to one another. We have a, sponsor, a responsibility to each other's needs, to each other's spiritual growth, and to each other's lives. And we've been sold on this idea that the church is about consuming. We shop from church to church to church like we look for new outfits, right? Like if, if we get to a point where someone says something we disagree or something that we don't like, we're out. We're not dealing with it. But in Acts, we see something so much more than that, so much more beautiful than that, right? We don't just see consumers, we see contributors. It says they sold their possessions, right? They gave to all who had need. And you and I have to recognize where we're at in our walk. For some of us, when we're just coming in the room, when we're just entering the family of God, we are consumers. That's exactly where we need to be, right? We need help. We need to learn to walk together. But as we grow As we move on, eventually we move towards becoming contributors. And if you're sitting in the room today and maybe you've gotten to a spot where you're like, I don't know if this is it for me. I don't know if this is deep enough. I don't know if this is the right church. Maybe I've outgrown this. Maybe I need to find something different. Maybe, Maybe that's true, maybe. But also, maybe we've been consuming when we should be contributing. And the other thing that we can do, the other way that we can grow together, the way we can find something deeper and something more real is to do exactly what the church in Acts did, is to repent together and grow together. When the church in Acts heard the sermon that Peter preached, they said, what do we do? What do you want us to do? They didn't sweep stuff under the rug. They didn't stuff the mess in the closet. They asked what they should do next. They didn't think, ah, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that message. That would have been really, really good for them, right? No, they recognized themselves and said it pierced their hearts and they asked where they should go next. As the church, if we can learn to repent together, we can learn to grow together. And the family of God is not too good for anyone. 
right? If you're sitting in the room, if you have breath in your lungs, you have space in the family of God, no matter where you're from, what your struggles are, what your secret sin is that you don't want anyone to know about, whatever the mess in the closet is, each one of us has a place in the family of God. There's nothing that can take that away from you. But as you enter into that space, as you grow into that space, as you build a community around you, as you learn what it looks like to walk with him, for every single one of us in the room, it should absolutely be transformative, right? It doesn't just stop there. It changes us forever. But I think lots of times we end up looking at everyone else, seeing where they need to be transformed instead of allowing the word of God to pierce our own hearts, Right? We like to talk about what everybody else needs to change before we look at ourselves. If the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to a family, there's freedom and there's growth in that family. Right? There's transformation in that family. And whenever we learn to repent together, we will begin to grow together. And more often than not, it begins by looking at ourselves. And what happens next with the family of God, I love how they finish out chapter two, this verse that says that they enjoyed the favor of all the people and every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. When we learn to live life this way, when we learn to have a real community, whenever we learn to open up to the family of God, it's attractive to the people in the community around us. The way that we love people should fling the doors open to all. And it's in that space that we can experience Sabbath rest, not just by ourselves, but also in community. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to family, then in that family, there's rest. Let's pray together. God, thank you uh, for being a God who invites us uh, to a beautiful family and to a family that doesn't just uh, accept us where we are, but ultimately transforms us. A family uh, that, that there's room for all at the table, God, that you don't turn anyone away. And I pray that you would help us do the same, God. That you would give us hearts that don't turn anyone away. That you would give us hearts that love people exactly where they are. That you would give us all the, the bravery and the boldness to open up the closet, let the mess spill out. And with the help of the Holy Spirit and your family, God, that you would help us begin to move beyond it together. So Father, I pray for everyone in this room today, everybody listening online, God, I pray uh, that, you would, that you would give us that person, that you give us that person that we can begin to open up with, that we can begin to be real with, that we can begin to let in on the mess, and that as we become comfortable with a person, eventually we'd become comfortable with a family. So God, I pray that you would help us be people uh, that lets other people open up the closets and let the mess out, and that you would give us the love to give in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen.